Blog Talk Radio. Praise God and welcome to Blog Talk Radio. Exorcism file number two, testimonies of how demonic activities can come through people's emotions. Let's get started. They've identified our strengths, they've noted our weaknesses, and they've devised strategies to defeat us. Jimmy, get away from the stove before you burn yourself. I wasn't doing anything. You were certainly wasting gas. I'm sorry. What were you doing over here, making me dinner? I was looking at the fires. What is it with you and fires? Fires just scare me. I know, that's what worries me. Can I be a firefighter when I grow up? <laughs> you can be anything you put your mind to. Now go outside and play. Mommy needs to do work. And no campfires. Okay, Mom. The devil knows us better than we know ourselves. So when the devil makes an offer for some extraordinary ability or for some other kind of gift, there has been careful engineering to make it maximally tempting. It's like a drug to an addict. There's a dependency that's formed. For the victim to give back that gift once he's accepted it can be often unbearable. You're listening to our resident priest and exorcist, Father Carlos Martins, and I'm your co-host, Ryan Bethay. Welcome to The Exorcist Files. Theology teaches that all humans are unique, special, and endowed by the Creator with various gifts and abilities. But there are other gifts, gifts that are not from above. What is the source of these gifts? Are they simply the result of being born with superior genetics? Were they dormant in us all along, then awakened by some psychological experience? Or is there another realm competing for influence over humanity and offering these gifts as a lure? May I introduce to you our next case file, the story of Jeremy, a firefighter whose greatest enemy came not in the light of a flame, but in the shadow of darkness. I received a very panicked call one day from a priest who lived a short distance away. It was a Saturday afternoon, and like most priests, he was hearing confessions. Hello, Father. Hello, my son. May God be with you. I... I don't remember my last confession. I understand. Tell me your sins, my son. I confess. I confess. I confess. This is the house of God. And you are safe. I Talk to me. I confess to blood. I'm sorry? I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. 
my vessel, you priest. I order you to go in the name of Christ. You can't make me go. Father, I'm leaving. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, be still, serpent. We've been together too long. He needs me. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, through his tremendous power as God, and through his most powerful and salvific name, I rebuke, I repudiate, bind, and cast out all evil spirits. I command all of you, in the name of Jesus, to depart right now from him and go has come up. I'm here at St. Joseph's, and just now somebody started manifesting in the confession. Right now? Yes, right now. I, I just stepped away from the booth, but he's currently on the floor, rolling around and growling. His voice is uh, about two octaves lower, and he kept cursing me and saying, he's mine, over and over again. I see. I'm sorry for this, but I think we need to send him to you right now. Okay, slow down. Take a breath. Carlos, he definitely has something going on, and he's enormous. Every time I prayed, it only made things worse. And whatever it is that, that's manifesting, it's primal. He's acting like an animal. I'm sorry, but I need to send him to you. This thing is escalating quickly. Well, I have my team here. So if it has to happen now, we can do it. I think it does, Carlos. Then bring him over immediately. We'll be ready. All priests have busy schedules. I mean, there is a shortage of priests, so all of us would take on different responsibilities. Normally, a priest does not agree to see an exorcism case immediately, because the devil will often send somebody to you to clog your wheels. It is not the case that simply because somebody has a demon that he or she wants to be free of the demon. This is a good moment to remind ourselves that, according to Christian theology, human beings are born with free will. In the Bible, one of the most severe cases of demonic possession is the Gerasene demoniac mentioned in Mark chapter 5. In this account, the man, even in the midst of his manifestation, saw Jesus and ran to him to be saved. Tragically though, not all those plagued by evil run towards deliverance. And, as Father will stress throughout this series, for an exorcism to really work, there must first exist a desire for liberation. Demons enter by way of doors. A door has to be opened to a demon. That door has to be closed to get rid of him. And if the victim is not willing to do that, there's nothing you as an exorcist can do. That victim has used his or her free will to make a covenant with the devil. It's not in your power to dissolve that covenant. A seasoned exorcist has learned to reject being arbitrarily pulled away from his schedule. But on this particular day, my team and I we were already meeting. That is why I agreed to meet with this person immediately. When Father alludes to his team, he is referring to other assistants that work with him during exorcisms. 
For a multitude of reasons, Father typically does not go into the room alone. Whenever possible, there are additional helpers present for support and prayer. When the victim arrived at the door with his wife, his name was Jeremy, and Jeremy was in his late 20s, tall, barrel-chested, chiseled muscles, an absolutely hulking man. And I thought to myself, if this guy gets violent, there will be no stopping. Have a seat. I'm Father Carlos Martin. It's nice to meet you, Father. This is my wife, Rachel. Hey. Hi. Pleased to meet you both. Yeah. I found him to be the epitome of a gentleman. So, let's begin. If it was the case that he had manifested, he certainly was not exhibiting any of that right now. So the issue for any exorcist is he has to diagnose whether a demon is actually present. He can never simply take someone else's word for it. In the Catholic Church's ritual for exorcism, which is called the rite of exorcism, it states that for the rite to be administered, the priest has to establish a moral certitude that an individual is possessed before he may administer that rite. Moral certitude is probably best understood in contrast with the kind of certitude offered in mathematics. Any mathematician will reach the same objective result when he's working on an equation as any other mathematician, unless an error has been made. But that kind of certitude is simply not available in real life. And in the case of exorcism, that is no different. The church identifies three signs of possession that an exorcist is told to look for. The first is the ability to speak in and to understand languages that the victim has never learned. For example, if a young Californian girl started speaking in a forgotten Norse language known only to a handful of professors that she had no contact with. The second is knowledge of the occult. Knowledge of events, facts, details, that it would be impossible for the victim to know through natural means. This could be an individual whom you have never met before, looking at you and recounting one of your private experiences to the exact detail, something that no one could know about you. The third sign is the display of superhuman strength, strength beyond one's natural human abilities. Such as an elderly woman weighing 100 pounds, who hurls a 300-pound man across the room. Also, the rite of exorcism identifies that in someone who is possessed, there will always be a vehement aversion to God, to the name of Jesus, to the Blessed Virgin Mary, to the saints, to the church, to the Word of God, and to anything that is sacred. But it's not one of the three classical signs. Aversion to God is not a fourth sign because, while important, it could in practice be fake or there could be some explanation in the natural realm, such as the person may be mentally ill or just strongly dislike religion. A display of superhuman strength can't be faked. The knowledge of unknown and distant events can't be faked. The ability to speak in and to understand languages no one has ever studied, that can't be faked. Father just mentioned the rite of exorcism. And if you're wondering what exactly that is, we asked him to break it down for us. The church has a ritual by which it conducts exorcism. And in the famous movie, The Exorcist, what you see is the exorcist priest 
he's praying the prayers from that ritual. Who sent your only begotten son into the world to crush that roaring lion, hasten to our call for help, and snatch from ruination and from the clutches of the noonday devil this human being made in your image and likeness. But the ritual is itself a relatively new thing. So it's only been around for less than 500 years. The ministry of exorcism was there from the beginning. We see it in New Testament times. In the early church, it was largely done by monks and laymen, so the non-ordained. But they were largely people who had set aside their life for ministry. That continued until the Middle Ages, when you had a very defined code. In the year 1614, there was a rite of exorcism within a greater ritual called the Roman ritual, which codified all of the different ceremonies and rituals. That in and of itself was a culmination of what happened throughout the early centuries and especially the Middle Ages, where the best practices, the collective wisdom was acknowledged and put together in instructions that would guide the church in its ministry against the devil. And yes, Father also just mentioned the mother of all films about exorcism, William Friedkin's magnum opus, The Exorcist. Now, when you find yourself in the room with an exorcist, the power of curiosity compels you to ask him his thoughts on the film. I did just that, and I must say that his response was fascinating. We'll be right back after a short commercial break. Get back to Jeremy, who, after a violent manifestation in a confessional with another priest, was brought to Father Martin's for immediate help. I led Jeremy and his wife into a room where we could all meet. Why don't we start from the beginning? Jeremy, tell me what happened. I remember going to confession. First time in probably 20 years. Uh, I haven't really been involved in the church since I was a kid. And why did you suddenly decide to go to confession? For starters, my wife. She knew I needed it. I've been uh, having these episodes, Father. Um, these episodes where I lose track of everything, and when I wake up, it's clear something bad has happened. And what happened? That's the thing, Father. <laughs> to the church and as I approached the confessional instant darkness just like that instant darkness the lights went out and I was cold it was just like so cold I was shivering and that's all I remember I'm here I see I wanted to give Jeremy as much freedom as possible to speak. So I excused Jeremy's wife so that only he, my team and I, remained in the room. He described an experience when he was eight years old where his older brother's friends brought home a Ouija board. You don't believe him? He sounded serious, dude. David wouldn't even know what a book was anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to get your numbness. Whoa, what's that? 
Did you get a new game? Hands off, Jeremy. This isn't a kid's game. Whatever, Nelson. I'm only three years younger than you, and you're not even an adult yet. Do I hear a dork just begging me for a titty twister? How do you pronounce this thing? Oh, we It's pronounced touch it again, and I'm deleting Roller Coaster Tycoon. If you did that, I would die. Come on, dude. Just fun play. It'll ruin the game, Joe. No, it won't. The game's more fun with more people. Fine, but I don't want you getting all scared and ruining it for everyone else. I won't. I promise. Now let's Ouija. It's called Ouija, you dingus. So, how does it work? It lets you talk with spirits. We all put our hands on this thing, and then we ask a question. If the spirit is listening, it will spell out the answer. For example, say our first question is, why is Jeremy absolutely too shrimpy to be a firefighter? Shut your face, Nelson. You shut up and put your hands on the slider. Let's see if this works. What's up, spirit realm? We're looking for a connection. Are there any spirits that want to talk? We have a question for you. Will little Jeremy here get to be a firefighter when he grows up? I'm going upstairs. Come on. I don't want to play this What's wrong, Jeremy? Two chickens have been the truth? No, we just tired. <laughs> He'll get over it. What are we asking next? How about which one of us gets to go out with Sarah Slaughter? Dude! Yes! The answer is me, but let's ask him. Sleep tight, Jeremy. Good night, Mommy. Later that night, as Jeremy went to bed, a figure came to him that was so black that it made the rest of the room appear like it was in broad daylight. Is someone there? Who is there? This figure had the body of a man and had the head of a cat. Stay away! Who, who are you? You asked, and now you see. I know what you want to be. How, how, how do you know that? You asked, I heard. What do you, what do you want? I want what you
As Father mentioned in our previous episode with Cheryl and Mark, a mortal sin occurs by breaking any of the Ten Commandments, and violating the First Commandment seems to be the most common gateway for full-blown demonic possession. The First Commandment states, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt not have strange gods before me. And humanity breaks this command time and time again as the gods of our wants and desires are piled up ahead of the Creator. For young Jeremy, it was no different. The kingdom of darkness knew his desires, and they stood poised, ready to strike, when a door was inadvertently opened. Remember, demons are pragmatic with what kind of temptations they deliver by leveraging us at strategic weak points. For example, if one develops a proclivity towards telling little white lies, one could be further tempted to lie more gravely. But even if, say, you never lie, good and honorable behaviors can also be weaponized. Imagine a pious, quiet, devoted monk who fasts regularly out of devotion to God. The monk, in theory, could then be tempted to judge others who do not also fast, thus inserting pride into his life and rendering the behavior sinful. But fear not, my fellow mortals. Father is not suggesting that demons are behind every temptation and bad decision. And, if the Christian narrative is true, it would be good to remember what we learned in episode 1. There remain twice as many good angels in support of humanity. With that favorable ratio in mind, let's get back to Jeremy, who was just infiltrated by an alien presence. And from that moment, Jeremy recalled being the strongest kid around. His teachers were amazed at how powerful he was. But along with this, Jeremy also experienced an increased aggression. Boom! Foul! No, no, no! Don't be ringing on my That was foul! You grabbed my arm! You didn't. Yes, you did. Next time, don't be grabbing my arm. Don't be a bitch. What was that? You heard me? Now who's pointing at? Just let it go, Jeremy. Uh-oh. Jeremy's mad, you guys. You better be careful. My dad's in the nick. Oh! 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 Wait! Wait! My tooth! Oh! Jeremy! Oh. Oh. You're hurting him! You're hurting him! Jeremy! Blow in my fire! He would become easily upset at anything. And he began having terrible bouts of rage directed at anything and anyone. Another common external sign of possession is bouts of uncontrollable rage and violence, whereby the possessed loses control of their normal personality and enters into a frenzy of anger, verbally or physically attacking others. In the more acute episodes of rage, the possessed will often lose consciousness, and after regaining consciousness, they remember nothing. Other victims have noted being conscious during the episode, but, quote, feeling as if an alien presence is operating in their bodies, end quote. Conscious or not, a second personality does emerge from within the victim, one of evil character. Outside of these bouts of fury, however, the victim can live an otherwise normal life. Jeremy frequently got into fights against even much older and bigger kids, but he never lost a fight, and eventually nobody was willing to fight him. He began to experience blackout periods where he would lose consciousness and memory. Suddenly and without warning, 
he would find himself in a completely different place than where he just was, having no idea how he got there. And there would always be a lapse of time. Uh, I went to South Point Mall, and then the next thing I know, I'm walking down the street 10 miles away, no idea how I got there, and I pulled $258 worth of cash out of my pocket. I have no idea whose money it is, how it got in my pocket. It's like, like someone just hit fast forward on the tape, you know? Just skipped ahead. Jeremy had one goal in life, and it was to be a firefighter. He enrolled in the firefighting academy after completing high school. Although he had to work hard at academics, he breezed through the physical requirements, and upon graduating, he was hired immediately. It was around this time that Jeremy began dating a young woman named Rachel. Rachel was attracted to his physique. Jeremy was elated that he finally found somebody willing to put up with his temper. Eventually, their relationship got serious, and they married. By this time, Jeremy's blackout periods had grown to encompass days. On one occasion, he woke up in a completely different town. Shirtless, shoeless, his knuckles were scraped, and his body was bruised and covered with cuts and scratches. somehow in all of this he managed to keep from getting fired 
Rachel began to fear for her safety. While the blackouts had always frightened Jeremy, now that he was losing whole days and not just hours, and now that he was finding trauma on his body, he was terrified. He knew there was something inside him, something that was evil, and he simply didn't know what to do about it. Around this same time, Jeremy's parents rediscovered their Christian faith. While they had never been bad people, they now had become extraordinarily good people. And this had a great effect on Rachel. She became attracted to the people that they had become. So as eventually, Rachel, who broached the God question with Jeremy, No, no, you go for it. Gotta be hungry. Jeremy, I think it's time we fix this. I'm sorry, I know. And I think whatever this is, it's more than just psychological. I think we need to go to church. Ouija board encounter 
his aunt, who was a spiritualist, liked to communicate with the dead, used the Ouija board to do so. She invited him to, hey, you know, sit at the table with me and, you know, I'll show you something neat. And he became possessed out of one single encounter. There was an actual transcript by an eyewitness present in the room, one of the Jesuits that was in that room. His job was to take notes. The transcript of that case was well done. I have a copy of that among my files at home. Yes, it's in his vault. The exorcist is impressive on many counts. The interaction between the priest and the demon is largely accurate. In an exorcism, you will see violent, belligerent behavior. You will see the laws of nature suspended. You'll see vomit do things that vomit doesn't typically do, a kind of marksmanship with spit and vomit that is incredible. You'll see temperature changes in the room. You'll see levitation, or at least you can see these things. If you have yet to see the film, you should have seen this by now. I have to say that the ending was not based on the actual account, and was frankly to me as an exorcist scandalous, where the priest, in order to quote-unquote save the victim, commands the demon to leave the victim and enter into him. Come into me! Damn you! You would absolutely never do that because you are then cooperating with the devil. The battle in exorcism is not between the priest and the devil. The battle is between Christ and the devil. Christ is the warrior. You are his agent. You are never disappointed when the devil doesn't come out on your command because it's not your command at the end of the day. It's Christ. So for you to come in as an exorcist and say to the demon, I want you out of that victim, and I want you in me. Doe of a Jesuit home near Bordeaux. The house was built above a river, and he landed on the rocks below. Unlike fictional Father Karras, however, Saran survived the fall with a broken thigh bone. While skeptics who analyzed his post-Ladon behavior leaned to the pathological, Many admitted it is at least curious that Saran's sudden transformation from seemingly normal mental health to a state of mental torment began immediately after he provoked the demon to enter him. And regrettably, Father Martins revealed to us that this ill-advised exorcism tactic was not an isolated event. I know of a situation where it happened two years ago. A priest who is possessed. And he had no training, and he had no business doing an exorcism to begin with, ordained two years ago, was thrown in in that ministry. His bishop allowed him to function with that, and now he makes our job way more difficult. And this is why the church takes great pains to only allow a certain kind of person in that battle. Because you've now become the victim. And the devil now has the Easter egg that he always wanted. I feel compelled to mention that out of all our recording sessions with Father Martins, this was the only time he became noticeably agitated. But hey, even Jesus got angry once. That's all the time we have for this episode, but join us next week for the conclusion of Jeremy's saga. Yes, the exorcism is coming, and forewarning, the material may be too intense for some. Listener discretion is advised.
Here's a sneak peek of our next episode. Where the hell were you? joining us for a deep dive into the case files of Father Carlos Martins. I'm your co-host, Ryan Bethay. Let's return to the case at hand, shall we? Last week, we introduced you to Jeremy, a firefighter who had an encounter with a dark force at a young age. When we left off, Jeremy had just met Father after manifesting in a confessional booth. Now, what's interesting there is that, aside from the blackout spells, which had provided a sort of smokescreen for its nefarious activities, the demon remained mostly hidden within Jeremy throughout his life. Yet only when the sacrament of confession was attempted did the demon fully present itself by manifesting in front of a witness. Confession is deadly to the enterprise of the devil. One confession is worth more than even 100 exorcisms. So the devil will do everything in his power to prevent somebody who is possessed from going to confession. He will prevent them from walking inside a church. He will cause a manifestation, for example, of confusion, where they will be unable to formulate a sentence that makes any sense. Or of nausea, where they feel like vomiting so badly that they can't be inside the church. If they approach the confessional, he will cause them a feeling of pain he will strike them with a manifestation whereby their mind goes blank and they forget why they're there. Or they will start writhing demonically. Anything to get them out of that physical place. Because, of course, they're in a danger zone insofar as the devil is concerned. This notion is a little counterintuitive. Because, as human beings, we are usually more impressed by spectacle. An exorcism, in and of itself, is a spectacle. It's a confrontation. It's dramatic, enthralling, it captivates our attention. Confession is not very spectacular. Nonetheless, as Father will tell you, 
it is still a greater divine gift than exorcism. With that in mind, let's get back to Jeremy, where Father now faces the task of diagnosing whether a demon is actually present within him. As always, listener discretion is advised. I remember walking into the confessional, but after that it's murky. The priest told me I was growling and screaming. The next clear memory I have is meeting you. I see. Now, Jeremy, if you don't mind, just just give me a second. I'm going to grab a few things real quick. Um, Please pardon my multitasking. I'm behind on so much here. No, you're good. That's uh, quite a collection of books you have. Oh, I don't see any Curious George up there. No, that wasn't. One of my textbooks, unfortunately, but please continue. Tell me more about this entity that takes control of you. What do you think it wants? That's the thing, Father. I have no idea. As Jeremy is relating all of this to me, I told him to keep talking, and I walked up to a bookcase in the room, grabbed a stack of books, and I placed them on the table in front of him. Some of them were books on theology, scripture commentary and stuff, but other books were on completely random topics. How to drywall a basement, the 2012 Baltimore Orioles yearbook, programming in C++. The point of this is he would be scanning the titles of each stack as I laid them on the table. So I am occupying Jeremy's eyes. And then I went to the shelf behind Jeremy, and on that shelf, I had a glass filled with water. But it wasn't just any water, it was holy water. I dipped my finger, and I picked up a quarter of a drop. Then, while I was still behind Jeremy, I flicked that holy water onto his back. With a speed that was startling, Jeremy shot up out of his chair, arched his upper body backwards, behind himself, such that Jeremy was now face-to-face with me, although his face was upside down. The pupil of his eyes rolled into his head, and his canine teeth suddenly appeared to be two inches long. He's hissing violently at me, much like a threatened cat would. For whatever reason, known only in the demonic world, that demon mirrored the behavior of a cat. Who are you? Now, for our listeners who aren't well-versed on holy water, here's a quick breakdown. Holy water is essentially water that has been blessed by a member of the clergy. It is used for rituals and ceremonies within multiple religions, as well as most branches of Christianity. In the Catholic tradition, there are actually different varieties of holy water, such as Epiphany and Easter water, that take varying amounts of time and ingredients to create. Epiphany water is blessed through a long ritual during the Feast of Epiphany, which celebrates the visit of the three wise men to the infant Jesus. 
Easter water is prepared at Easter Vigil in conjunction with a special prayer and the dipping of the Paschal candle, which many would recognize as the large white candle at Easter service. The most common holy water used by exorcists is that which is blessed from the old Roman ritual published in the year 1614. That rite involves exercising salt and then blessing it, exercising water, then blessing it, mixing the two, and finally blessing the mixture. This elaborate ritual is performed because at the fall of Adam, the devil gained dominion over the world. Therefore, by blessing the salt and water, the devil's power over those elements is nullified. So, why salt? Well, instances of using salt to cleanse what is harmful was established in the Bible, such as when Elisha used salt to purify the water in infertile land of Jericho in 2 Kings chapter 2. Now, when we use holy water, exercised and blessed salt, and the other sacramentals, they have a real effect on the devil. Because those holy objects carry the power of God within them. If you're like me, you're wondering exactly how a material thing, like holy water, would have such an effect on a metaphysical thing, like a fallen angel. Father clarified for us. Forewarning, it gets a little heady. Einstein's discovery that the senses can deceive with regard to our understanding of reality applies also to the spiritual realm. Although I commanded the demon in the name of Jesus, there was no obvious sign of the demon's compliance. Demons are annoyingly legalistic. They often will obey an exorcist's command, and they won't give an indication that they've done so. Then, when the exorcist repeats that same command, the demon suffers no injury by them because he's already complied. It's all a demonic tactic. Drain the exorcist and make him believe that he has no authority over this demon. And if the exorcist falls for it, if he puts more faith in the demon's ability than in his own, then all his subsequent commands will be less effective because there has been a lessening of his faith. But I knew that Jeremy could hear me if I spoke. Jeremy, I know you can hear me. I need you to join me in renouncing this demon. Jeremy. Father, 
I mean, do you hear me? Back up. Laura, Made to God, 
One can also ask for prayers from the saints in heaven. Catholic doctrine teaches that there are venerated saints in heaven, like the Blessed Virgin Mary, who can offer prayers to God on our behalf if we ask them. This practice does not occur across all Christian denominations. Protestants in particular generally disagree with praying to anyone but God. Protestants often criticize the Catholic practice of praying to the saints. But this criticism comes from a misunderstanding of what it means to pray. The word pray means to ask. It does not mean to worship. Both Catholics and Protestants agree that worship is due to God alone. Shakespeare used the word prithy throughout his plays as a contraction of the phrase, I pray thee. It's equivalent to saying, I ask you. But this intercessory influence of Mary on her son is not lost on Catholics. Speaking of Catholic traditions, let's briefly return to 1996, when atheist college student Carlos Martins had taken a shine to what he saw in some of his Christian professors and fellow students. I was invited on a Eucharistic adoration retreat, and I opted to go simply because of the character of the young men that organized this retreat. I had no idea what I was getting into. They said retreat, and I heard vacation. So I said, great, I'll bring the beer. For those not in the know, the Catholic Church believes that the Eucharist, or the bread and wine consecrated by the priest at Mass, are not just symbols. They become the actual body and blood of Jesus. And adoration of the Eucharist is a practice where the Eucharist is exposed in the form of bread on the altar and then worshipped as God. Not quite the beer-fueled collegiate expedition Father had in mind. The Eucharist is not ever left alone when it is exposed. It needs a worshiper. That was a hard and fast rule. On this retreat, each man would have four hours of adoration a day. I had threes and nines. So from 3 to 4 a.m., 9 to 10 a.m., 3 to 4 p.m., 9 to 10 p.m., those were my four shifts a day. And so on that first shift, as everybody piled out of the chapel, the Eucharist is now exposed, and I was there alone, I just remember having a sense of embarrassment and frankly shame because I didn't believe and I felt completely out of place. I was looking at what appeared to be a cracker in a fancy holder on the altar. So what did I do? Well, I plotted my escape. I could have said something like, hey, I forgot something at home or I'm feeling sick, but all of the reasons seemed completely inadequate. The character of these young men who had invited me was so good that I just could not bring myself to lie to them. I couldn't help but marvel at the irony of it all. A natural skeptic, who has trouble believing in the Eucharist and its supernatural significance, would, within a decade, become a leading exorcist in the church he doubted, entering into spiritual combat with manifesting demons. Such is life. Jeremy's eyes changed from looking like they belonged to an alert, ferocious animal to those of someone struggling to fight off tremendous fatigue. 
Jeremy, I know you can hear me, I repeated. Tell the demon to leave. Jeremy's pupils reappeared. Jeremy, stay with me. Leave me. The enemy is not leaving without your cooperation. Come on, Jeremy. Maybe. Jeremy slumped over. Jeremy, say Jesus. Say the Lord's name. Invite the Lord into this battle and come back to us. Watch out! The glass of holy water curled past my face and smashed against the wall into pieces. Serpent, I command you in the name of Christ to stop manifesting. I find you in the name of Jesus. You have no authority to hell with you, priest. He's my vessel. I'm not going anywhere. Yes, Jack. Say, We'll be right back after this short commercial break. I don't know, but if you are, please reveal yourself to me. If you can give me the faith that I see in these young men, then I will give you my life. What happened next was, well, largely nothing. I didn't see anything. I didn't hear anything. I didn't have a great insight. But there was a tiny, tiny sense of peace that emerged within me. It was far from being overwhelming, but it was enough that it kept me in that chapel to finish that hour. And then the start of my next shift. That thread of peace was now thicker. It still was not overwhelming, but I was surprised at how quickly that hour passed by. My next shift after that was at 3 a.m. I'm the only one awake, and that peace increased to such an extent that I knew that I was in front of he who created me, that he was aware of me, and I felt this profound sense of love and peace take me over. And peace is the one experience that cannot be counterfeited. Life was completely different from that point onwards. I got my undergraduate degree in philosophy, got a master's degree in philosophy, and then I got an education degree. And shortly after that is when I entered seminary. I put in six years in seminary and then was ordained a priest. Shortly after that, I was tasked to be an exorcist. And that, folks, is how a skeptic becomes a Catholic. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.